This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller, and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today on the program, we are talking about all of the stuff going on with child labor. We have some updates on our fundraiser. Mayo Pete is bad. Uh, we talk about some updates on the UMWA's return to work. All that and more on today's program. If you want to be part of the show today, we've got a phone number and the line is open. We don't have any guests scheduled for today, so give us a call. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also leave us a voicemail or send us a text message through the week and we might respond on the next program. If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap here on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us anywhere you find anything online. We are on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, Twitch, all those places. Um, and a lot of it is going to be republishing you know, clips from the live show. But also, sometimes we have takes. And don't you want those? Our takes are good, so you want them. So follow us. Uh, just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. So if you want to become a sustaining member of the program, make a one-time donation, buy our hat or our new merch. You can go to tvlr.fm store to buy our merch and tvlr.fm donate to become a sustaining member. If you're a member of a union, then please... Get your local to sponsor the show. You can reach out to us for more details on that. And let me add a disclaimer that any viewpoints or opinions expressed today in this program belong solely to their author and do not necessarily represent any organization or sponsor. Whether you're listening through YouTube, Facebook, WVNN, or if you're catching us later on WZZA, WHIV, or through your favorite podcast app, really appreciate your time. Thank you for listening. And we are proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Encourage all of our listeners to check that out. And my last announcement is that we do still have our survey up for our listeners. If you'd like to give us feedback, tell us what you like, what you don't like, what you'd like to see more of. Uh, the survey is in the YouTube description. It should also be in the chat on Facebook and YouTube. Appreciate the super chat. From Strom McCallum. Starting out Greetings. strong Starting with Strom. Appreciate that, bro. Strong. $2. Appreciate it. Greetings from South Carolina. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Always love uh, seeing you in the chat. So, 
Uh, TVLR.fm slash expand. That is where we are holding our expansion fundraiser. We've been updating y'all every week for the last month about this fundraiser. We are chugging right along, very happy with our progress. We have raised $2,200. We have $1,800 more to go to uh, reach our goal of $4,000. Uh, that will be able to fund a month of expansion for the project and that expansion is going to include uh, lots of lots of new stuff lots of better stuff we think um, so you know we think it's going to be worth it hope you do too if you haven't donated then please do consider doing that at tvlr.fm slash expand also we have a new merch item up if you uh, want a little bit some uh, something a little bit more material for your money I know that uh, a lot of times I'll do the same I'll do something like that like if there's a you know if there's a podcast that I like uh, but I don't think you know I, I'm like ah oh, well you know I'd like to get maybe maybe a merch item I'll, I'll throw them a little money through a merch item uh, we also have that up uh, pre-orders are open at tvlr.fm slash store for our new shirt with with art by Tabitha Arnold, the eminently talented Tabitha Arnold. Uh, very excited about that. And the shirts themselves, like the material of the shirts, are really good. They're really, really good. We've had um, we had one merch order that we did with the, the the shirt that Adam is wearing right now, the Joining Union shirt. And um, you know, we like the shirt. We really like the design. But it's just, you know, it's not like, it, it's it's like a, a union t-shirt, like a local union t-shirt that you get, uh, you know, at a lot of these different, a lot of these different events and that it just doesn't feel that nice to me. I don't know. David likes them. David likes the harsh, the, the harsher fabric. I don't like it. I like it to be soft. I like to feel like I, you know, like it's soft. But I also want it to be, you know, uh, uh, what's... Um, I can't, I'm having trouble thinking of the word, but, um, ethical. <laughs> no, I mean, I want it to be that too, but, um, substantial. I want it to be substantial. I want a soft, soft shirt, but I want it to be substantial. And these shirts that we got from American Roots, from American Roots are just that. Uh, they are 100% union made in the USA, soft shirts, but they're they're not like the thin, super thin soft shirts that you're gonna get at like a retail store sometimes. Uh, they are, they're thick, they're soft, they're union made, and uh, the artwork is, uh, we paid the artist, and so, yeah, durable is another suggestion that we got. So yeah, um, I think they're going to be great. Definitely consider um, getting one of those shirts. TVLR.fm slash store. Uh, so we've got one more week before we launch our expansion. Like I said, we're really excited. And just another really quick reminder uh, about what it is going to be. And as well as a reminder that you can go through our whole, we're very, very transparent on the Valley Labor Report. Like if you, you know, we, and so you can go back and watch our video on our YouTube channel where we laid out what we're doing, who's getting paid, how much, where our money's going, all of this uh, talked about how much money we're getting from sponsors. You know, we're very transparent. And so if you see that and you're like, well, you know, I don't, I just, I don't think that, that it's worth it. Then you don't have to, you know, you don't have to support the fundraiser. But 
we're very transparent about that. So we talked about how much money we're getting, how uh, where it's where it's all going, where it's coming from, and how much and and really went into detail about what we want to do. But just really quickly, you know, we want to do more original reporting. Some of it's going to be in house. Some of it's going to be freelancers that we are going to be working with. Uh, we're going to do a new weekly show dedicated to labor history and education as a solo project by Adam. Very excited about that. Uh, and also, we're going to be securing broader syndication of the work for written content and for radio stations. So that's what we're going to be doing in brief. Um, you can check out our video on YouTube for more, for more um, explanation about what we're going to be doing. So... To increase our output that much, we're going to be shifting a lot of the organization from volunteer to paid positions so that they can focus more on the project. We'll be increasing hours uh, uh, of work for folks that are already paid and making sure that everybody uh, gets paid $20 an hour. I'm going to stay on as a volunteer, and by our calculations, this is going to require approximately $4,000 a month, more than we are bringing in right now. So if you like that or you want some more explanation, you can go watch the video, but if you think that sounds good, then donate to tvlr.fm slash store or tvlr.fm slash expand by our merch at tvlr.fm slash store or and, and then um, if you've done that, then definitely think about becoming a sustaining member of the program and you can obviously, you know, if you're going to donate you know, 50 or 100 or $200 to our expansion fundraiser um, obviously we wouldn't expect a $200 recurring donation, but Something like if everybody that donated to our expansion fundraiser was a $5 monthly contributor, that would be very helpful. So consider that. Yeah. I mean, long story short, we want to have a full service labor media outlet focused right here in Alabama and in the South. Uh, so I've been humbled by the support we've received so far. We've received... Uh, not just donations, but we've received endorsements from people that I truly respect. Uh, those of you on our email list got a couple of those this past week from Harvey JK and from David Story. Uh, more on the way, but really appreciate it. And I understand times are tough for, you know, most of the folks who are listening to this program. Uh, presumably you're working class like we are, and you don't have a lot of expendable income. So, one thing you can do is spread the word, right? You mm. can you can share our stuff on social media. You can subscribe to our stuff on, on YouTube and podcast apps, that kind of thing. Uh, it really goes a long way, and, and that's a way you can help this project. If you believe in what we're trying to do, if you believe in having working-class media in the South, for the South, by the South, uh, contribute that way uh, by sharing and spreading the word. It, that goes a long way, and we really appreciate it. Uh, and, and I'll make one last plug for the listener survey. Uh, we've had a few responses so far, not a ton. Uh, would love to get more feedback on the survey about really what you like, what you don't like, where you want us to go. Uh, we've gotten some good ideas so far through the survey. Uh, and just a reminder, uh, once we close that in a week or two, uh, I'm going to do a little random drawing and have at least one lucky winner will get a nice little prize package from us. Um, and just some good news. We just hit this morning, 3000 subscribers on yeah, YouTube. I saw that. That's great. That's yeah. Cause nice I saw little... it yesterday. We were still at like 2,900 something or another, but now we're at 3000, 3000 subscribers on YouTube. So very cool. All right.
Uh, last Week in Southern Labor is a segment that we do every week, mostly, where we tell you what happened in the labor movement in the South. We pull the information from Jonah Furman's newsletter, Who Gets the Bird, which compiles all this information for the entire United States. So if you want to see what's going on outside of the South, then subscribe to that newsletter at whogetsthebird.substack.com. And with that, let's jump into new organizing for the three weeks of January 29th to February 19th, with the note that because this is a larger edition that includes three weeks. They're going to be leaving out some of the smaller filings. Uh, starting off strong, 196 school bus drivers for first student operating his Apple bus in Huntsville, Alabama are unionizing with Teamsters Local 402. I got to say, I love that as someone who represented Huntsville City School employees, as someone who frequently had to battle privatization and outsourcing. Um, Huntsville City Schools has long outsourced their school bus drivers. They do not employ them directly. Mm. Uh, Apple Bus is just the latest of a series of contractors to come through town. And, man, I got to say, Teamsters Local 402. Yep. Really excited about I, that. I got nothing but love for y'all for doing this. I spoke and, to the uh, business agent last week, and uh, he's going to be seeing if we can, if uh, he can get us in touch with the organizers and some of the drivers. So, uh, Yes, I I personally would, would love to, to have some chats with them, and I'm wishing them much success. And I... Uh, you know, I always told Huntsville City Schools, like, be careful what you wish for, because private yeah. sector employees can have a real union, yeah. not a professional organization. So buckle up. 50 beer distribution drivers for premium distributors in Richmond, Virginia are organizing with the Teamsters Local 322. 128 more baristas are joining Starbucks Workers United, including at another store in Knoxville, Tennessee. 60 workers at Dulles Drywall in Chantilly, Virginia, are joining the Carpenters Local 197. 42 clericals at Pinsk in El Paso, Texas, are joining UAW Local 286. 31 workers for Madison, Florida's Tri-County Electric Cooperative are organizing with the IBEW. 22 clericals at a Hormel Meatpacking plant in Tucker, Georgia, are joining UFCW Local 1996. 15 workers at Atlanta Gas and Light are joining IBEW Local 1997. And Teamsters Local 322 and SEIU Local 512 have reached a turf agreement for city workers in Richmond, Virginia. Newly eligible to unionize with blue-collar workers filing to join the Teamsters and admin and clerical workers filing with SEIU. In wins and losses, Teamsters 577 won yet another school bus union vote with 58 drivers at first student in Plainview, Texas, voting 36 to 4 to join. 33 teachers of unaccompanied minor immigrants for Southwest Key in El Paso, Texas, voted 15 to 9 to join the, to join the operating engineers, Local 351. 15 warehouse workers at Fort Bliss, Texas, voted 14 to 0 to join Operating Engineers Local 351. And RWDSU lost a landslide vote among 56 lumber workers for Patrick Industries right here in Decatur, Alabama, 5 to 48. Hate to see that. 12 facility workers at a Fort Bliss, Texas contractor voted 2 to 10 against joining Operating Engineers Local 351. And while Northern Virginia transit workers with ATU and the Teamsters are on strike, 
149 First Transit workers who run Arlington, Virginia Rapid Transit voted 41 to 76 to decertify AFSME Local 3001. All 17 maintenance workers at another Fort Bliss, Texas contractor voted to decertify Operating Engineers Local 351, and 15 staffers at the Innocence Project in Atlanta have voted to join Teamsters Local 728 after a card check vote. In strike and bargaining updates, the UMWA has sent a letter to Warrior Matt Cole in Brookwood, Alabama, offering an unconditional return to work without a contract, a month shy of the two-year mark of what started as an 1,100-member strike, a strike in which pick pickets were outlawed by activist judges, in which hundreds of workers scammed, in which miners headed to Manhattan and D.C. to target the shareholders and politicians behind Warrior Met, and in which, as UMWA President Cecil Robert put it in his letter to the company, nothing has materially changed. The ATU Local 689 strike against private operator Keolis, which runs Loudoun County, Virginia's public transit system, is now in its eighth week on strike, with the union pushing on the county's board of supervisors, headed by Phyllis Randall, a Democrat who has gotten around $100,000 in co campaign contributions from labor, including ATU specifically, to intervene. Maybe ATU President John Costa could mention it at his next DNC function. In neighboring Prince William County, Virginia, 150 transit workers with Teamsters Local 639 have also walked out on strike against Keolis, shutting down the, company's, uh, the county's Omni-Ride system. Coffee workers kept the strike wave alive with Starbucks Workers United shutting down an Atlanta store for an unfair labor practice morning strike. The rail worker paid sick leave fight is not over and BMWE and BRC workers at CSX and then expanded to IAM and NSFO workers as well secured a deal for paid sick days. Four, not seven or 15, as had been pushed by the unions. Uh, Jonas heard rumors of other sick days, sick day deals to be rolled out uh, for them, but not sure. 90% of rail workers who aren't members of those four unions at, C uh, at CSX uh, still do not have sick days. And so there's rumors about sick days being ruled out for them. Nothing official yet. In politics and legislation, Marty Walsh left the Department of Labor to head the National Hockey League Players Association, where he will double his salary and at least half the number of people getting mad at him. Loudoun County. At least. <laughs> Loudoun County, Virginia is moving closer to local public sector collective bargaining as firefighters and teachers collect signatures to petition the local authorities to pass an ordinance under the 2021 state law that allows such things. The Federal Office of Personnel Management is telling agencies to take another look at who, who they have excluded from bargaining units and take a more expansive view of who gets to be a federal union member. In internal union politics, the union election at UAW is in its final days of mail-in voting and may actually already be concluded as of the reading of this, uh, uh, of this letter, um, with ballots set to be counted in early March. Ian Colgren spoke to incumbent Ray Curry and gave an overview of the stakes while challenger Sean Fain laid out his case in the, in the Detroit Free Press. 
and on its heels may be a contested UFCW international leadership election, which would be the first of its kind since the union's founding in the 1970s. The UFCW reform effort, which Jonah wrote about some months ago for Labor Notes, is coalescing around the Meet the Moment candidates, though there remains an uphill, ba uphill battle to hold an actual vote, let alone for any challengers to win such a vote. And with that, we're going to head to a break. On the other side, we're going to be talking about a couple of child labor stories and discussing Mayo Pete. Stay tuned. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Are you looking for a better future, a career that can have you set for life, and to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself? If you are, then consider a skilled trades apprenticeship with the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. The work of IUPAT is all around us, from the industrial painters who work on the bridges to drywall finishers, floor coverers, the glazers who install the glass in our skylines, and so much more. With an IUPAT apprenticeship, you earn while you learn and receive benefits while learning the trade, including a pension. We provide world-class education free of charge. That's right, no student debt. Our starting salaries for apprentices that graduate is above the national median salary with benefits for entire families. And you have the flexibility to take your trade wherever you'd like in the country to work. IUPAT District Council 77 covers our entire region, so give Adam Booth a call at 205-603-3142 for more information. Again, that phone number is 205-603-3142. 
Come build a better future with us today and join IUPAC. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. And you are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morris, and my co-host is Adam Keller. Uh, and we've got a phone number, and the line is open. If you've got anything to add, you can give us a call or send us a text. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. Tapwater in the chat says, where are the other two musketeers, Jacob? And uh, still, I'm... I, I, We're I'm, looking for them. Yeah, probably going to be working on uh, trying to convince Adam to... to curl his to, to grow his mustache out and start curling it up you keep working on it brother so we'll someday see. i'll get back to you on that i'll get back to you um and uh uh dl cindero says peace comrades and fellow workers peace david mentions that he read yesterday that sarah nelson was being considered for the new uh uh you, you said in the chat, David, NLRB appointee, but I think you meant DOL secretary, secretary of the Department of Labor, because that's what I've read. And uh, we've got that down to talk about that in overtime, uh, because we have some opinions and we have read the opinions of other people. Um, so and we imagine you have opinions as well. So uh, keep them coming. Keep them coming. Keep the opinions coming. So there is... Uh, way, way, way too much child labor going on. Uh, we've got a couple stories for you. And actually, I just read this morning a huge feature from the New York Times uh, that is really good um, and that I would recommend reading. Um, and I, I'm actually going to be reaching out to the author of this piece and see if we can't get, uh, get them on at some point. Uh, the title of the piece is Alone and Exploited Migrant Children Work Brutal Jobs Across the United States. The author is Hannah Dreer uh, with photographs by Kirsten Luce. So uh, really, really detailed article. Um, they interviewed more than 100 migrant child workers in 20 states, including here in Alabama. Uh, I haven't been able to finish it, but it's it's very very good. I would I would recommend checking that out. Um, and uh, so we wanted to give you some updates on this child labor story in Hyundai at Hyundai, and it was announced that just yesterday, according to Reuters, Hyundai told shareholders that it would divest its controlling stake in major Alabama auto parts plants, where Reuters last year documented children as young as 12 working. Now, Hyundai had made noises about this before, um, and before they had said that they may even totally cut them off and stop doing business with them. Um, the UAW and other advocacy groups balked at that, saying that, you know, cutting business with these suppliers is not going to actually fix the issue. And in fact, taking jobs away from people that cooperated with these investigations, that reported these... Um, that reported the uh, violations, that's actually going to hurt the community and that's going to disincentivize people from coming forward in the future. Right. I mean, it's a form of collective retaliation in a yes. way. So, um, you know, seeming to address these concerns, an executive wrote in, that, in the letter to shareholders that Hyundai was, quote, in the process of divesting its ownership interest in SMART, but it would ensure, quote, that economically important jobs in Laverne, Alabama community are preserved. So, um, glad to hear that, and obviously going to be looking for more from the future. He in the future, he also said in the letter 
to shareholders, uh, the Hyundai chief executive, Jaehyun Chang. The company said that recent audits of 29 of its direct suppliers across Alabama made it confident that they are now in full compliance with underage labor laws. Um, so that's, you know. Congratulations, congratulations. for entering uh, what, the 20th century. Right. Just a reminder that one of the plants where children work, Smart Alabama LLC in rural Laverne, Alabama, they're a direct Hyundai subsidiary. Hyundai are the only people that own any part of this plant. Additionally, according to Hyundai's financial statements from last year, the automaker controls a 72% stake in Smart. And so now they're saying that they're going to be divesting. They're going to be totally separating from these companies, but they're still going to be, presumably, it sounds like, doing business with them, ordering parts from them. Um, so I'm not sure exactly how that's going to work, but when the talk of you know this divestment stuff comes up, it's... I. I see that as an opportunity to say the workers should own this thing. The workers should own this thing. And there is a proposal that Jeremy Corbyn in the UK has put out there uh, when, in his 2017 run for prime minister that I am a big fan of. I'm a big fan of. And you all know, listening to the show, that I have long, you know, of course, I'm a, I'm a union member. I'm a supporter of democracy. I'm a supporter of economic democracy. I think that workers should control the things. Uh, we should control our work. We, sh we should control our production, right? Um, and, I, and that's not an unreasonable thing. One of the ways that Jeremy Corbyn sought to incentivize worker ownership while, main, while staying within the bounds of you know, a capitalist system is that any time in this proposal, obviously did not become law because Jeremy Corbyn didn't become prime minister, his party didn't win the, the parliament, all this stuff. But the proposal was to say that if this becomes law, any time a company wants to sell itself, wants to go bankrupt, in this case wants to divest, the first thing that they have to do is they have to give the workers a right of first refusal, meaning that some venture capital firm cannot come in and buy this firm, people with no connection to the community, people with really no connection to the work, right? These private equity firms are not, you know, you don't have private equity firms that really know a lot about this or that industry. They're just investment firms that also happen to own coal mines or hospitals or schools or all these other things. They only see these as investment assets. And so under this proposal, if a company wants to sell itself, before they can go to some leeches in D.C. and New York private equity groups, international private equity groups, they have to give an offer to the workers and say, look, this is a fair, this is the fair market value of our enterprise that you have spent, in many cases, your entire life. That maybe you've even sacrif sacrificed blood, sweat, tears, body parts, you know, in these, in these metal stamping facilities. Some people have no doubt lost fingers here, right? 
but they're not going to but these people are not going to get a say in what happens and who buys them and what happens when somebody buys them is they are going to have total control over the way that production is structured they're going to have total control over the work rules over everything they can reduce salaries they can cut jobs they can make things more unsafe they can hire more child laborers and the workers are going to have no say over it absolutely no say over it and that doesn't make any sense that doesn't make any sense. So the workers should have the opportunity to collectively buy the organization that they make run anytime the owners say, we want to get rid of it. And to finance that, the, gover the government should create low or no interest loans to help the workers do this. Absolutely. This is absolutely an eminently reasonable thing this is by no means authoritarian or um even frankly anti you know it's you could say it's anti-capitalist in a sense because you're putting you're you're really injecting some democracy and capitalism is it, one of the one of the things about it obviously capitalism is, is structured around markets but one of the things about it is the hierarchy and you're really cutting at that hierarchy but if the workers don't want to buy it, if they're fine with some private equity firm doing it, or, or even they just would prefer to get a different job or they're not interested in it, then, that, then they don't have to under this proposal. Under this proposal, they don't have to buy the company. They don't have to take the low or no interest loan from the government to buy the company. And somebody else can buy it. And that's totally fine. That's totally fine under this proposal. It's, it's so, it makes so much sense that... Uh, that's the reason that it's it's not law, right? It right. just makes too much sense. I, that's exactly what I was going to say. It makes so much sense. That's why we rarely talk about it in the United States of America. That's yeah. why we're referring to you know a brother over in the UK uh, when we talk about this idea. But I think there's so much there. Uh, when we look at deindustrialization across the United States, if we look at outsourcing across the United States... Uh, politicians of both parties for all these decades have come up with uh, all sorts of promises that they made about mm -hmm. this, but very little concrete actual policies uh, to address any of these issues. And in fact, you know, typically it's policies to make them worse, mm -hmm. right? This is a policy, the right of first refusal paired with, as you mentioned, some form of financing, uh, which could easily be accomplished if we implemented postal service banking, uh, as many have long advocated for. Mm -hmm. You know, there are ways to do that, uh, and that would be a backstop against these plant closures, uh, this, this outsourcing that devastates so many communities, particularly rural communities uh, here in the South and, and across the country, especially in the Midwest. Absolutely. And, you know, I... Give us a call, 844-899-TVLR, 844-899-8857. Tell me why that's not a good idea. Give me a justification why the workers, not, not even why the company should be mandated that the workers, to give ownership over to the workers, to give control over the workers. Why shouldn't they have the opportunity? Why should they not be able to have an opportunity now that the company that they are working for is saying we don't want the ownership stake in this. We don't what we don't want it. We don't want it. We want our hands clean. We want our hands clean. Why should the people who do the work not have the opportunity to run it? Tell yeah. me why. 
TVLR. I do. Yeah, I mean, and and I know we need to get back to Hyundai's child labor updates, but on this note, I mean, I can't help but think about Warrior Matt, mm. right? Uh, what if the well, miners themselves had been provided that opportunity back in 2016 during the bankruptcy? Yeah. You know, so as opposed to BlackRock and and a consortium of hedge fund investors, the miners themselves were able to purchase the mines, right? And then they would have really been able to bring the company back up to snuff, uh, but in a way that that was not exploitive to them. So I think there's there's just a lot there uh, that we do not discuss in this country when it comes to the right of first refusal and the ways to finance that in in a bottom-up kind of way that could really expand economic democracy and expand uh, community development. Absolutely. Previously, uh, Hyundai had made mention that they would hire direct suppliers, uh, that they would direct suppliers to stop using third-party staffing agencies, Um, going back to the updates, uh, which are how the children found their way into these places, right? Um, And that's one of the issues with, even though... Hyundai is 100% owner of one of these companies, 72% owner of of one of the others. It's got a different name, and so that's one measure of separation from Hyundai. You know, Hyundai can say, oh, we have all these commitments to safety and and the safety of children and all of this stuff, Um, and we know it's BS, and that's just one of the ways that they are able to separate themselves from the actual issues. And then the suppliers... They separate themselves from the issue by going to these third-party staffing agencies to bring children in, and they can say, oh, I had no idea that this obviously 12-year-old child is a 12-year-old child. The third-party staffing agency said they were an adult. Who, you know, how could I know? How could I know? And then, you know, so the supplier says, how could I know? Hyundai says, how could I know? And that's how they get away with this, right? So Hyundai is going to be directing, Hyundai said, they would be directing suppliers to stop using third-party agencies uh, to staff the places. Imagine that, an employer directly hiring employees. Mm, yeah, that would be crazy. And, uh, and and just as a reminder about the work that these children are doing, we're going to be talking about, a, a you know, children should not be working even in, in a McDonald's when they're, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old. And they shouldn't be working at a McDonald's, you know, beyond nine uh, PM, and we're going to be talking about a case like that here in just a moment. But this is not that we can recognize. We can say both of these things are bad, while recognizing that the Hyundai situation is worse. Okay, and that's just a fact. This is not children working in a fast food restaurant, which there are dangers there. But that's not that. They're working in a manufacturing environment where even Alabama law, state law says that children under 16 can't work, and then over 16, 16 to 18, you've got to have, like, parents' permission or something. But under 16, you're not able to, you're not allowed to work in these manufacturing environments. And this isn't even, the facility in Laverne is not even just a normal manufacturing environment. This is a manufacturing environment where OSHA has fined this, uh, uh, this manufacturer more than $50,000 for safety violations, including amputation hazards and crush hazards. So this is manufacturing environments. Even Alabama has recognized this is just so unsafe. Children shouldn't be in it at all. But then they are, and illegally so, 
unsafe manufacturing environment. So this is the kind of stuff that we're talking about these children working in. Four plants have been confirmed to have used children as young as the age of 12. Six more are under investigation for a total of 10. But anyway, they had previously said they'd direct suppliers to stop using these third-party agencies. However, in a letter yesterday, in the letter yesterday, Chang said that they were, quote, discouraging suppliers from relying on such staffing agencies in the future. And that is very suspicious to me. Suspicious and, and eerie. Something else that happened since the last time we spoke about this is that 33 House representatives uh, from the U.S. House of Representatives wrote a letter about this situation, none of whom represent Alabama. Now, when you hear that, you'll probably think like I did that why are there no Alabama representatives on this letter? But I think that some of the contents of the letter will kind of belie the reasoning. Um, because So firstly, they asked the Department of Labor to look into Hyundai's supply chain for child labor. I think the Department of Labor is doing that, but that's fine. More pressure is good on this front. But the kicker is that they also asked Hyundai to cut ties with its suppliers that used child labor, which is something that worker advocacy groups, uh, including the UAW, the United Auto Workers, have specifically said, we don't want... Hyundai to do this, right? We want Hyundai to continue buying parts manufactured from these facilities uh, because that's what's best for the community. We just want, you know, you can want that while still wanting child labor to be eliminated. You don't, the, the only way to, it's not like closing these plants is the only way to eliminate child labor, right? Obviously. Right. They could stay open and follow the law. Right. I know that's radical, but you know, that seems like a pretty obvious solution to me yeah. uh, is that they actually follow the law and that the government, that the state implements regulations and follows regulations and actually makes sure that they're following the law. Yeah. So in the letter, the representatives state that they are, quote, concerned that Hyundai at the Department of Labor's suggestion reversed course on the commitment and will not cut ties with its Alabama suppliers that use child labor. Um and that's a good thing. That's what the UAW, the UAW does not want them to cut ties with Alabama suppliers that, you, that used child labor. They just want the Alabama suppliers to not use child labor. Right. So, yeah, I, I understand uh, the representatives who wrote that letter and I understand, you know, what they're trying to do. And I applaud them for actually taking some action on the issue, uh, particularly you gotta since. got to think these things through. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know. As a working class person in Alabama, you really have no representation in Washington, D.C., or very mm -hmm. little, right? Uh, so, you know, I applaud them for being interested in this issue and for, you know, willing to being willing to say something about this issue. But, yeah, you that's where you have to really think it through and think about the impact on local communities. Mm -hmm. um, because, yeah, you just, just shutting it down and everyone losing their job is not a good solution uh, by any means, right? right? It's how about accountability mm. for those who have been breaking the law and enforcement of the law moving forward? Mm. Crazy. Our second story comes from Pennsylvania, where McDonald's franchise owner Thomas DeCharm Jr. paid nearly $100,000 for child labor violations, specifically at seven restaurants across the state. 154 minors were employed at times they should not, that they should have been at home focusing on their schoolwork, investigators said. At five of the locations, more than 23 minors, some as young as 14, were found to be working illegally. 
In particular, the McDonald's locations located in Erie and Warren employed children more than 18 hours a week in some instances, as well as before 7 a.m. and after 7 p.m. during the school year. And on days they were not in school, some were asked to work more than eight hours in a day and during the summer after 9 p.m., which is prohibited by federal law. Nine children were also found to be operating deep fryers before the legally required minimum age of 16. Um, just wild stuff. Wild stuff. Clearly, what, it's a pattern with this particular yes. franchisee. Obviously. I mean, you know, the guy's restaurants all across the state of Pennsylvania are violating laws. Mm, yeah. But, Adam, you will be happy to hear that in a statement provided to Insider, the criminal DeCharm said he is, quote, deeply committed to the safety and well-being of all my employees, presum and ending quote there, presumably he also means the children that he employs. Uh, he also said in the letter that he has learned an important lesson. <laughs> <laughs> Quote, I have adopted several enhanced processes to address scheduling issues and to ensure my organization is meeting the high standards to which we hold ourselves. Yeah, I think not employing 14-year-olds more than eight hours past 9 p.m., that's a low standard, in fact, actually. That's a pretty damn low standard. Yeah, following Pennsylvania and United States federal labor laws, um, mm. not a particularly high standard, frankly. Right. Yeah, if you wanted to have a high standard, say, like, I'm just blanket not going to hire anybody under 18 because they should all be in school, right? Maybe maybe that's what you could do. But uh, we aren't the only ones noticing a trend here in that insider piece from the Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division John Dumont said, since 2018, we have seen an alarming increase in the number of young workers employed in violation of federal child labor laws. In 2022, more than 3,800 children were found to be employed in violation of federal law, whereas in 2012, that number was just over 1,600. So it has more than doubled in the past decade. Yes. That... Um, that is very alarming. Very alarming. Uh, and like I said, check out that New York Times piece. Very good. Uh, alone and exploited migrant children work brutal jobs across the United States. Uh, and I'm going to see if we can't get Hannah Dreer on the show to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, that would be very, great. Very, very good piece. That would be great. I mean, it, you know, the, these same bosses who say nobody wants to work anymore yeah. are now hitting up middle schools, I guess. To find mm. to find someone willing to work, it's just very disturbing. And you know, one of the common themes on this show is uh, a deja vu of the Gilded Age. Right. And you know, here again, we're talking about railroad barons destroying the country, while other capitalists are employing children mm. in unsafe conditions. You know, these are headlines that could have easily been, you know plucked from the papers 150 years ago. It's just really absolutely. gross. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we did want to talk about uh, Pete and this railroad situation, but uh, let's get to some, let's actually get to the COVID emergency ending first. Uh, that's that's a bit more Alabama focused and we'll save that for, uh, we'll save that for the end of the main show if we still have some time. So, um, you know, 
the COVID-19 pandemic, there was a, there was a national emergency that was instituted by, by Trump, right? At the beginning of the thing. Um, and now the Biden administration is looking to wind down and there have been some good pieces about what that is going to mean for workers in Alabama. So walk us through that, Adam. Yeah. So just to back up, since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, we've experienced over 100 million cases in the United States with over a million deaths and millions more disabled. I think you have to start there by acknowledging that reality. And while we've certainly come a long way uh, here in, you know, it's almost March 2023, so we're, you know, a few years into this, we've come a long way. We shouldn't forget that the disease continues to infect, disable, and even kill our brothers and sisters across the country. The Biden administration has officially declared an end to the, quote, public health emergency of COVID-19. But that is a lot more than just rhetoric. It is an, a distinct policy shift that's going to impact millions of Americans. First up, I wanted to look at the impact this will have on hunger in Alabama. A recent article by Carol Gunlack of Alabama Rise titled End of Emergency Snap Allotments Will Increase Hunger in Alabama breaks it down for us. And you can find that on Alabama Rise's website. I believe is also republished by the Alabama Political Reporter. As Carol notes, the public health emergency meant temporary increases to SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, commonly known as food stamps. These temporary increases to the benefit will expire at the end of February. Quote, nearly 400,000 Alabama households will see average cuts to their SNAP benefits of around $170 a month. Particularly hard hit will be older adults and people with disabilities who live alone. Before the pandemic, SNAP benefits for these households could be as low as $16 per month. Emergency allotments boosted these folks' benefits to the maximum of $281 per month for an individual. But with these increases ending, all of these participants will now see their food budgets decline, possibly to as little as the current minimum of $23 per month. So that's, you know, a pretty significant impact that's going to have on hundreds of thousands of folks right here in the state of Alabama, uh, to say nothing of, of course, the the economic impact. Right. Uh, these folks will have less money to purchase food. Uh, therefore, ostensibly, we could we can assume there's going to be less food purchases. Um so there's going to be an economic impact there, but most importantly, there's going to be a real human impact with people's food budgets being slashed. So the end of the COVID emergency is not just, you know, a, a milestone. It's not just a, a rhetorical thing. It's going to have a real material impact on people's budgets and people's livelihoods. And state and while state and local officials can't stop the expiration of these temporary SNAP benefits, that's a federal decision. Uh, Carol does point to some things that the Alabama legislature could do if it wanted to address food insecurity among our fellow Alabamians. Of course, as we've discussed frequently on the show, Alabama could remove the sales tax on groceries, 
which would be the equivalent of about an extra two weeks worth of groceries for folks uh, once you account for that, uh, that discount, more or less. Alabama is one of only three states in the country to fully tax groceries. And Arise has been a uh, longtime champion of repealing that sales tax, which disproportionately punishes the poor and working class. Arise also recommends local school districts to expand free school meals, including summer meal programs, and encourages eligible school districts to adopt the community eligibility provision if they haven't and are if they haven't already in order to expand their food services. Um, and that's very important. It allows schools to have basically blanket free meal programs where instead of having to have every child, you know, turn in their documentation about their parents' income and all that, uh, you know, there's some schools where you already know the uh, the high poverty level in the school. And so uh, a lot of those schools are eligible for this community eligibility provision where they can easily expand their food services and even offer supper services, summer feeding programs. That's huge. That is a huge benefit for families and for young people. Uh, you know, so many of our students rely on the meals provided at school. It's the only stable hot meal they have from day to day. So there's a lot there uh, that school districts can do to try to fill that gap. It's unfortunate as always, public schools are often left to fill the gap in our social services. Uh, Alabama Rise also encourages the legislature to provide state funding to the Double Up Food Bucks program, and that offers extra fruit and vegetables to SNAP participants. It's a good program, but it's currently hampered by lack of state support here in Alabama. And finally, on that note, it's worth remembering that back in D.C., Congress will have to reauthorize the Farm Bill which would be an opportunity to expand SNAP to lock in some of these supplemental benefits that are set to expire this month. But obviously, given the Republican takeover of the House of Representatives, that seems less and less likely. But it isn't just food security that's going to be impacted by the end of the public health emergency. It's also health care and, of course, our response to the virus. I want to point you to a recent article by Allender Roca with the Alabama Reflector, uh, published February 15th, What the End of the COVID Emergency Means for Alabama Medicaid Coverage, Monitoring of the Virus, Both Likely to Decline. So the end of the COVID emergency is going to change what we know about the virus's activities. Uh, it's also going to affect the state's Medicaid enrollment. The public health emergency actually required Medicaid agencies to keep people enrolled in the program, even if they no longer qualified for it. Basically, as long as the emergency was in place, no one was supposed to be kicked off Medicaid. With the end of the emergency, there's going to be people losing their health coverage through Medicaid, though the exact number of Alabamians is not really clear. Um, Nationwide, it's estimated up to 15 million people could lose coverage either in Medicaid or through CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program, when this emergency ends this month. 15 million people potentially losing health care. Uh, it's just, just an enormous toll that's going to take on the working class of this country. Uh, just a, a few reminders here. The Medicaid continuous enrollment provision that was part of that emergency declaration was effectively discontinued last December, 
States will begin taking people off Medicaid on April 1st, ahead of the end of the PHE. Uh, and the reflector goes on to talk to uh, a couple of folks in the article, including director of the state health reform program and associate director of the program on Medicaid and uninsured at the Kaiser Family Foundation. That's Jennifer Tolbert. Uh, now, Ms. Tolbert was a little more positive. She seemed to think that children in Alabama would not be impacted, uh, at least not for some time. Um, children are provided continuous coverage for 12 months and cannot be kicked off the program during that period. So that's some good news, I suppose, uh, in the midst of some very bad news. Uh, but she does go on to say that, quote, in a state like Alabama, there are concerns that adults, parents, in particular low-income parents, are at risk of losing coverage because the state has not expanded Medicaid. So many parents who did qualify during the pandemic will lose coverage once the disenrollment begins. So that is a major impact we're going to see on the working class of Alabama and across the country. And it's not just the healthcare aspect, uh, but the actual response to the virus as well is going to change because the end of the public health emergency means changes to COVID-19 policies and COVID-19 reporting requirements, right? There's going to be uh, less requirements for securing COVID-19 lab results and vaccine data from labs, for example. Um, so the reporting of negative test results, the ability to even calculate like how many people are currently positive with COVID-19, that's going to be diminished. And you know, for me, per I'm just speaking, you know, personally here as someone who's by no means an expert in, in COVID-19 or in healthcare, that worries me, right? We, we, we have this disease and we are more or less declaring victory and we are going to diminish our ability to monitor this disease and monitor its impact, monitor its spread. So... You know, I think that's very concerning, especially, you know, we've seen various strains of COVID come along over these past few years. So, you know, I'm just hoping and praying that we don't have, you know, really wicked strain come through right as this emergency has has ended and we are less able to actually respond. You know, the United States did a particularly poor job of responding to COVID-19 by most metrics. You know, I know there's a lot of debate about how various states responded, how the federal government responded. But, you know, if you just want to look at the bottom line facts, when it comes to death, when it comes to disability, when it comes to infection rates, the United States clearly failed compared to most of our peers on the global stage. Uh, so to know that this emergency is ending and our monitoring, our testing, our response to the virus is also diminishing with this end at the same time that we're taking food out of people's mouths and we're taking health care away from folks. Uh, it's just very disturbing. And I think that is something that has been underreported, frankly, uh, the way this is going to impact regular folks across the state and across the country. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Um, and. You know, uh, particularly the stuff about people getting kicked off Medicaid. Um, right. I mean, because that's to me, that's the nightmare scenario is, OK, a couple of months from now, 
We're doing less testing. We're doing less mm-hmm. monitoring. We don't even really know where COVID's at, how many people have it, where it's spreading, right. where the hotspots are. And oh, by the way, here's a few hundred thousand more people in your state without health care. Right. You know, what could go wrong? Right. So, uh, you know, I think I think there's going to be a lot said and written in, in the years uh, coming up about the United States response to COVID, um, both in the Trump administration and in the Biden administration. But I think this uh, this declaration of victory, so to speak, mm. uh, and the turning over of the response to the private sector, I, I think we're going to have some long lasting impacts here. Uh, it's it's easy to to think now. And, you know, it's February 25th, 2023, that, you know, we're kind of over covid that we've we've made it through the other side. Uh, but I, I really do think there's going to be some significant impact on working people with this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, no doubt. Absolutely no doubt. I mean, even aside from the aside from the idea about the the COVID stuff, just people getting people getting kicked off Medicare and losing their health insurance is bad enough. Right. I mean, even yeah, if, that's if we obscene were, in right. in any context, right? The the idea that someone would lose health care. Uh I'm a humanitarian and I believe that people deserve healthcare mm-hmm. just because they're human beings just because they're my brothers and my sisters living on this planet with me i think they ought to be able to go to a doctor or in a hospital or in a dentist when they need to uh and that's considered a radical idea in this country i don't think it is it, it's certainly not in in most other developed countries that guarantee health care as a human right uh but yeah it's it's uh it, it's obscene in any context to kick people off health care uh, but particularly in the context of a pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we're going to be right back. And on the other side, we are going to be talking about giving you a quick update on the UMWA situation and uh, then talking about uh, Dale Jackson breaking federal law on the air. Ooh. Yeah, going to be a lot of fun. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Valley Labor Report. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Support for this program also comes from the Iron Workers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, 
and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Ironworkers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. The Laborers International Union of North America, Local 366, is proudly recruiting North Alabama workers to work construction and nuclear plant maintenance. If you're interested, please contact Donna at their training center to start the process. That phone number is 256 415 Again, that phone number is 256-415-7452. No experience is needed. Free training is offered, but you must be able to pass a background check and a drug test. Local hiring that grows our community with good-paying jobs that have benefits is their mission. Live better. Work union. Local 366. Feel the power. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. Alabama's only union talk radio show, this is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. And we're broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. If you've got anything to add, you can give us a call or send us a text. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. So, last week we told you that the UMWA sent an unconditional return-to-work offer to Warrior Met, and Warrior Met had not responded at that date. We also uh, went through a recap of the situation, kind of a power analysis of how, how, how is it that, as Cecil Roberts said, nothing has materially changed. How is it that that happened? We tried, to, we tried to explain some of that, and we tried to explain some of the legal ramifications of sending a unconditional return to work offer. So, if you want to check that out, it's on our YouTube channel. You can do that. Um... The update now is that Warrior Met has responded, accepting the offer, 
and saying that uh, Mar uh, that returning workers to work on March the 2nd may be a bit ambitious. It may be a bit too quick, um, but they're willing to work with that as the goal. Um, but they do need the uh, striking miners to take physical examinations, drug tests, and safety training before they can return to work, as well as reiterating their position that 41 of the striking miners will not be allowed back to work for allegations of improper picket line activity. Um, See, that really pisses me off because yeah. to me, <clears throat> that is a separate issue if you have legitimate evidence of 41 people who have done something wrong, then that then pursue that through your disciplinary yep. procedures, right? Don't I, I think that is a power move by the company. Mm -hmm. They are uh, intentionally trying to further divide the union and get the union to to throw those folks under the bus. And I, I just really find that despicable. Uh, yep. And there's just no there's no excuse for that because like any employer they have a method and a set of procedures to administer discipline and if they have proof mm -hmm. that these folks have done something well then they can they can address that yeah to say that they are just not allowed back over these allegations allegations right allegations Unproven. right yeah. I, I mean I don't know who the miners are, the 41, you know, and I don't know, like, to the extent to which they have due process rights, you know, their seniority, that kind of thing. But, you know, presumably there's some due process they're entitled to. Um, and so I just uh, I find that highly, highly objectionable. And also the scabs who have there's been no investigation from the company as far as we can tell into the scabs that have hit people on the picket line into people into the scabs that actually shot a gun at people on the picket line unprovoked uh you know so right. there's totally a you know obvious there's an obvious uh different treatment here uh towards the union folks and um, if you really want to, yeah, I mean, if you really want to find out about improper picket line activity, quote unquote, um, you can't just look at one side. And, and I think that's pretty much what uh, the company is putting forward. And um, yeah, as you said, there was improper, improper picket line activity mm -hmm. from folks on the company side, from folks on the scab side. Right. So. Uh, and also you want some truth and reconciliation right. commission to, to yeah. come, you know, find out all the facts of, you know, everything that everybody did wrong, you know, okay. But, uh, to just say that these particular miners we think did something bad and therefore we're not going to budge and let them in, in on the property is just obscene. Exactly. And also, you know, frankly, the picket line is a contentious place. And so you are going to have some amount of it is let me put it this way it is not unreasonable that you would have some amount of tensions flaring of conflict at the site of the picket line at the site of you know i mean let's it's let's an emotionally charged it's an emotionally thing. charged place and scabs are going into the mine taking your job and uh you know s stabbing you in the back right, right? yeah because these are people who know 
full well exactly. what, that they're scabbing, right? And, yeah. and, and I want to make that distinction. Um, and I give credit to someone in my life who, who helped me have that distinction. I was describing a different labor situation, and I called some people scabs. And she was like, hold up. You know, did they really know they were scabs? Mm-hmm. And I had to think about it. And in that case, I, I can't say for sure they did. In this case, right? They these people knew are yeah. I they mean, they were scabbing. They knew they were crossing the picket line. They knew that they were facilitating Warrior Met's effort to crush the union and to crush an entire community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that that they, pisses people off, like right. understandably. Okay, yeah, and and I mean you know this isn't just us. I mean you can go look at at literary giant Jack London. How did he describe scabs? From This is Jack London's definition of a scab. After God had finished the rattlesnake, the toad, and the vampire, he had some awful stuff left with which he made a scab. A scab is a two-legged animal with a corkscrew soul, a waterlogged brain, and a combination backbone made of jelly and glue. Where others have hearts, he carries a tumor of rotten principles. Judas Iscariot was a gentleman compared to a scab for betraying his master. He had the character to hang himself. The scab hasn't. There's nothing lower than a scab. Right? And so look, you're... you're Jack London would be canceled today if he said that, right? Right, right. Uh, Under our, you know, yeah, politically correct. He he would be... uh, They would probably try to sue him. Yeah. For uttering such words. And so, you know, look, you're faced with these people every day. You know, things are going to happen. And and again, you know, you can tell me, oh, Jake, you know good and well Jack London's a socialist radical. And, you know, okay, fair enough. Let's look at what the United States Supreme Court in the 1940s said. The United States Supreme Court in the 1940s prohibited companies from not rehiring workers after a strike where there were proven instances of picket line violence because the Supreme Court recognized that, you know, look, you know, these things happen. They didn't kill anybody. Nobody was seriously hurt. Some people threw threw a few punches. It was on the picket line. Whatever. You know, deal with it. It's not that big a deal. That's what the Supreme Court of the United States of America said. In, 19, in the 1940s, okay? So, you know, frankly, whatever happened, unless, you know, and obviously nobody was killed, nobody was seriously injured. How do I know that? Because we would know about that if somebody was murdered, right, on the picket line by the miners, okay? We would know about that. That hasn't happened. These people should be able to go back to work. So the UMWA has said they're in receipt of the letter. The union meets on Wednesday to discuss. We'll update you next week. Uh, so last thing, probably the last thing that we'll be able to get to today is this, um, (laughs) this thing, uh, Dale Jackson, Dale Jackson is, you know, we've been talking about how, um, one of the things about bosses is that there's obviously a profit incentive but there's also this weird power trip that people go on, right? There's this weird, like, just this just this power thing, just the idea. We talked about this with Scott Buttram the other day. You know, he just has total contempt. Dale is not, is, is not this bad um, by, at, at least for all workers, because Dale has, throughout the strike, been sympathetic to the miners, at least when I've come on the air. Uh, whereas Scott Buttram 
owner and publisher and capitalist of the Trustville Tribune, uh, he, you know, he literally laughed at them having lost the struggle. Uh, but Dale Jackson has been sympathetic, um, even though he's only sympathetic when I'm on the program with him and he doesn't talk about it any other time. But anyway, um, but you know, there's just this weird thing where people just feel super entitled and, and just any challenge to their authority or their perceived authority is met with indignation. Um, and we saw that last week on the Dale Jackson show and he allowed that indignation to take him so far that he violated federal law live on the air. Um, so we are going to now play a clip and we're going to react to it as it goes because it's kind of a longer clip. It's about two and a half minutes long. And so we're going to start and stop in, in places. And so, you know, Adam, be ready to, to stop that. But but we're going to play this clip of of now, you know, now uh, uh, criminal Dale Jackson, right? He's, uh, <laughs> I mean... He's an illegal, I think, is is how he would say it. But so anyway, we're gonna we're, we're gonna play this clip from Criminal Dale Jackson um, here on the show, and we're gonna react to it. Let's play that. I also appreciate the people who are willing to go back to work. Apparently, there is not a lot of those. There is a revolt uh, taking place at Amazon right now because people don't want to go back to work. Yes, that's right. Uh, the CEO wants them to show up in the office at least three days a week, which I don't understand. I. I I know there's a bunch of people out there that work on the arsenal and stuff like this. I don't get it. I, I really don't get it. There, there are offices on the arsenal. It's like, oh, you got to come back three days a week. What is the point? Is it about COVID? If it's about COVID, that makes no sense. Uh, just be around each other every other day. I, I don't know. If it's about maybe making people's lives easier, maybe I do understand that. Okay, let's oh, just stop oh, really? it there. Yeah. You, you do. <laughs> uh, because, yeah, some people are fully capable of doing their job remotely, and if they're fully capable of doing it remotely, then why the hell not should... I mean, why the hell should they not be able to do that, right? Right. And even, you know, the idea that it, it's not... That there's, there's no benefits as far as, you know, infectious diseases go, you're only in the office two days a week. Well, what does it mean when you're only in the office two days a week? That means there are fewer people in the office on every day of the week. And we obviously know that when there are more people, when there are more people in the office, it's easier for infectious disease, just as a cold thing, you know? And so the idea that he doesn't understand that is weird to me. Yeah, common but, sense says yes. if you're around people five days a week, that's more exposure than being around people two or three times a week. And common, common sense, sense says that if you're around more people, that's more opportunity for more exposure. So that's just a super right. weird thing. Um, but then, yes, it's... It is a work benefit to be able to work from home. And I, I mean, I'm of the opinion that, that I think there's a certain amount of value add from a couple of days in the office. That's my work schedule. I work a couple of days in the office, a couple of days at home. And I think there's some value add to being in the office a little bit. I, you know, but, uh, and so that's the, that's the thing is part of it is like, you know, there's a value add to being in the office and there's a value add to be able for, for the competitive nature of your, uh, of your job to be able to attract talent to say that sometimes you can work at home, mm -hmm. but which is most of the jobs on the arsenal. Like, let's be real. Okay. Continue. Uh, by not making them go to work. I, I mean, I think it's just as simple as we can put this. If you can't trust your employees to work remotely, then you can't trust your employees and you should do something about that. Okay. I mean, that that's, that's how I would put that. Okay. So he stop there. See there. Like, yes, that's right. Like if it is, it is a it is the responsibility of management to, to manage <laughs> to manage and if you can't manage your employees remotely 
maybe there's a discipline issue, but also there's a management issue, and it's and it's on management. And he understands this, and so he keeps going back and forth between, oh, maybe I understand this, and oh, this is crazy. Super weird segment, but we haven't gotten to, uh, you know, he's still he's still before, you know, he's still uh, on the right side of the law, but not not for long, not for long. Laugh at the workers, though I do, and, and I say this as someone who has worked remotely for years and does not ever want to go back. I, I will tell you that. I mean, it has been way easier, way easier. Huh. And, I, and I'm the guy who resisted going remote in the first place to the point where corporate had to be like, um, get out of the office now. And I was like, okay, fine, I guess I will. But uh, Amazon employees. I do laugh at the workers, though, even though I work from home and it's super easy and I like it and I don't ever want to go back. This is so weird. Why? Why? Works for me, but not for thee. Why? This is just so bizarre. So bizarre. And he, I, I can't remember if this is part of the segment, but in this larger segment, this 20, 20 minutes or so, he talks about how, oh, um, I'm in a, I'm special. I'm, I think he actually uses the word I'm special because I'm on the radio. And it's like, no, you're not. You have, you happen to have a job that can be done from home. And several other people have jobs that can be done yeah, from home. Yeah, a few million, in, in fact. <laughs> okay. Very upset. Some are even drafting petitions. I don't even get that. Would you ever present your employer with a petition? Uh, would, would you, the, just the idea is just sounds so, so foreign to me. It, it, it makes sense. I mean, people that don't want to show work, up to work, do you think they're going to show up to protest? No. If you work remotely, well, then you sign petitions to, promo protest, to uh, protest remotely. Do you, do you protest your own employer? <laughs> sure, if you don't want to work. Okay, hold up. So that's the only reason you might <laughs> protest your employer is you don't want to work. And the only reason you might sign a petition is because you don't, you're too lazy to show up to a protest. Right. That's I mean, and the idea, the idea is that if you're working at home, you're not showing up to work. But... You're this working. conversation is <laughs> happening remotely. Like this is so, so weird that he's that. Uh, who is this for? Who? Because he said uh, we're in the the area that we're in is uh, the arsenal. A Jacob. lot of the people that are listening to him are listening <laughs> on their government laptops at home, clickety clacking in a way. Yeah, but if you do your spreadsheets for? at home. The office infrastructure, the real estate interests that own and operate these offices and downtowns and such, they're not super happy about that. Mm. If you're doing your spreadsheets at home and sending your emails at home. Uh, but yeah, it is it is pretty asinine to think the the hypocrisy there and having, you know, having this conversation remotely right. speaking to an audience full of people working remotely as they're listening to the conversation uh, and pretending as if being remote means you don't want to work and you're not working. Mm -hmm. Super weird. Yeah. I, mean, I just, I, mean, I, I don't know if the people that work for me got together and, and signed a petition and tried to pass it around publicly, that'd be the list of people that get fired next time layoffs come around. I mean, that's what it'd be for me. I, I just don't get it. If you want to, if you want to talk to me about it, fine. And talk to your first line supervisor and go from there. Mm, all right. So there we go. Um, he's got an open door policy, Adam. 
at the at the Dale Jackson show. You got an open open door policy. You can just this is what they all say. There's always like a an open door policy, and it's always silly. And I don't know, you know, maybe maybe he's a fine boss. I don't know, but he did break federal law. Just there. That's a violation of federal law to say that if you get a petition, that's going to be the list of people you fire in the next round of layoffs. That is a violation of federal labor law. That is a violation of the National Labor Relations Act. It is. I got to so, I got to I will hand it to him in this sense. He at least said it out loud. <laughs> right. Um he at least said what all bosses are thinking. Mm. So, I'll give him that much credit for being willing to go on the record in breaking the law and admitting yep. his intentions to break the law. So, I pulled from the the language of the law, um, and I also uh, pulled from an explainer on the uh, Department of Labor's website. So, employees have the right to unionize, to join together to advance their interests as employees, and to refrain from such activity. It is unlawful for an employer to interfere with, restrain, or coerce employees in the exercise of their rights. For example, employers may not respond to an organizing drive by threatening interrogating or spying on pro and pro union employees or by promising benefits if they if they forget about the union section 7 of the NLRA the National Labor Relations Act guarantees employees quote the right to self-organization, to form, join, or assist labor organizations, to bargain collectively through representatives of their own choosing, and to engage in other concerted activities for the purpose of collective bargaining or other mutual aid or protection, as well as the right to, quote, refrain from all, any and all such activities. And Section 8A1 of the National Labor Relations Act makes it an unfair labor practice for an employer to interfere with, restrain, or coerce employees in the exercise of the rights guaranteed Guaranteed in section seven. For example, you may not threaten employees with adverse consequences if they engage in protected concerted activity. Activity is, quote, concerted if it is engaged in, with, or on the authority of other employees, like a petition, not solely by and on behalf of the employee himself. It includes circumstances where a single employee seeks to initiate, induce, or prepare for group action, as well as where an employee brings a group complaint to the attention of management. It is specifically called out. And, and so, like, has he ever read the law, the National Labor Relations Act, that you're supposed to read as an employer? That you're supposed to actually have, aren't you supposed to have the NLRA hanging up, like, visible in your workplace somewhere? Well, employers have such responsibility. Mm. They have so much response, and they take so much risk. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot they about take so the much risk. risk. I forgot about the risk. You're right. Right. There's the risk oh, that you might damn. accidentally break the law Ugh. on tape, Jeez. live on air. There's, yeah. yeah. So, so anyway, uh, any employees of the Dale Jackson show, we're gonna clip this, and you just just save it. Just say, you don't ever have save to, it for that rainy day. But save it for the rainy day. Put it in your notes file because uh, if you get fired after you after you do protected concerted activity, especially under uh, under our president Joe Byron, 
you will probably be reinstated, even if it's going to take several, several months. Um, but this is not, he's not the only one that's done stuff like this. Barstool Sports CEO remember that. did a tweet saying that he'd fire anybody immediately if they contacted a union. Um, and he had to, he had to settle with the NLRB and remove the tweet. Ben Shapiro had to do the same thing. And so, uh, because you can file unfair labor practices, even if you're not an employee, um, and that is set up so that, uh, because obviously if you have an employer who is openly, where just anybody can see it, threatening you with retaliation for protected concerted activities, then um, you can see why maybe an employee wouldn't want to put their name on an unfair labor practice charge. So uh, people who are not employees can also file unfair labor practice charges. And so they did that to the Barstool Sports CEO and to Ben Shapiro, and they had to settle with the NLRB, take down those tweets, and um, and I think even email their employees that they've got a right to, you know, collective action and all this kind of stuff. So, so Dale Jackson employees, uh, put this in your back pocket because that's uh, some going to be some real good evidence in your reinstatement case. <laughs> As we're wrapping up here on the radio, just a reminder, our UMWA sisters and brothers are still on strike for now. You can donate to their strike pantry at paypal.me slash UMWA strike pantry. The Tennessee Valley Progressive Alliance is hosting Dana Sweeney from the Alabama Appleseed Center for Law and Justice to discuss state legislative issues and Appleseed's latest research. The event's going to be on March 14th at 6 p.m. at the downtown Huntsville Library Main Auditorium. United Women of Color have some volunteer opportunities coming up over the next several weeks, so sign up for their emails at uwoc.org. The next installment of their community series will be a virtual event on Thursday, March the 9th from 6 to 7.30, featuring our friends at the Huntsville Bail Fund. Very cool. Leave us a voicemail or give us a call. Talk to us about what we've been talking about in overtime, 844-899-8857. Uh, we're going to be talking about Secretary of Labor Sarah Nelson, a reversed injunction, labor history, a whole lot more. All power to the workers. See you in overtime.